and slowly but surely the journey for someone in a community is now come in feel welcome in room one find room two find person within room two that they get very very excited by and it's very scientific at that point and to me like that that is a really good healthy sign of community growth welcome to webflail podcast dedicated to uncovering the greatest failures behind the greatest web flowers. I'm your host, Jack Redley, your failure connoisseur. Today, my guest is Emily Lanetto, the Director of Community at Webflow, the company which inspired this podcast. In today's episode, we talk about pushing automations too early, using personal devices for company marketing efforts, and the marketing tactics that go hideously wrong. We also discuss how to build a community, build relationships, and imminent plans for Webflow's community. So, embrace and learn from failure in episode 6 of Webflow with Emily Lanetto. It is an honor to have you here, Emily. Thank you so much. And you say my title so much better than I do. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to just take that and use it as my soundbite moving forward. I'm very, very glad we started off on such a great foot then. So you have sent me amazing, amazing failures. But before we get into those, tell me a little bit about your early career and what led you to Webflow. Yeah. So I mean, I feel like many people have like found Webflow in like a point of like deep frustration of like, hey, I have this idea, I like cannot execute on it. Like I will do anything to be able to get that. And I think my my whole path leading up to Webflow was very much so that it was like, hey, like I'm like this level one player who like has no idea what they're doing. And I'm like just desperately trying to level up with tools or add-ons or things that make my, my tool set better. And I guess like my path to Webflow actually started when I was a musician, which is really, really random. I was a lead singer in an alt-rock band starting when I was like 16 until when I was 19. And basically from that, we had to do all of our marketing, all of our promotion, all of our things ourselves. And we had obviously could not afford it. I was 16. I was the youngest member of my team. I like to think the most graphically, (laughs) graphically talented of the team since at the time I had Photoshop. That was like literally all I had Um, and had basically self-taught and had taken a bunch of different design courses, got really excited about that. And then realized that as people were starting to grow their own backgrounds, post MySpace, you like needed to learn how to make your own website. So took some of like my graphic design background there, mixed that with needing to make that for my band. And next thing you know, was translating my designs from like Photoshop into at the time Dreamweaver, then Squarespace, the whole shebang. And then eventually I realized that I actually had more passion for that type of building and design and marketing than I did for my own music. (laughs) And that kind of led me into going more into that tech career, going more into entrepreneurship and slowly um, discovering Webflow, which kind of took my love for just automation and design. And then unlocked just a whole new potential and I don't think I've looked back since 2016. (laughs) Wow it's amazing that it all started with your music it's such an interesting part of your life that um, maybe people that are watching this or listening to this don't actually know about but it just shows the power of Webflow infiltrating kind of every different industry regardless of what industry it's just if you want to build something quickly and 
you know, make a digital footprint for yourself, you can do that with Webflow. So it's so cool that you started there. Are we going to hear any music throughout the podcast? Are you going to oh sing at all now? I sincerely hope not. <laughs> um, I was a much edgier, angstier Emily back then, like full, okay. full blown, like at Warp Tour every year, like in the crowd. Oh wow! Okay, um, like mosh pit, like eyeliner. Did not know how to use eyeliner correctly. Era, it was bad. <laughs> okay, so tell me a little bit about how we went from the Emily who was in the mosh pit, who didn't know how to wear <laughs> eyeliner, who was just making stuff because you kind of had to in that time, to the Emily that is now working at Webflow. Tell me a little bit about that journey. Yeah, I mean, other than the fact that I, I vaguely know how to do eyeliner better um, and mosh pits are like a really good analogy to startups, um, <laughs> is I think that... Um, like for me, that dopamine hit of like seeing something that like has just been on your screen now go live and impact many. I think it switched from me like having the motivation of I need to do this to solve a problem for myself to realizing the potential of I need to do this to solve a problem for others and how exciting and addicting in a really good way that became. And that kind of led me into discovering tech and software and understanding how much that if you can build good design experiences, whether it's on web, whether it's in app, whether it's in your messaging, you can actually change the direction of other people's lives and what they can accomplish and things like that. The same way that I'm sure all of us who are listening today, including yourself, Jack, have like, found a piece of software and you're like oh my god there's like a whole nother like part of my life that I've just unlocked and so as I kind of started my career I was more so focused in just get into any startup just learn I want to be an entrepreneur I want to like get into startup so I can learn how to do that myself then started to see like the impact and the feedback loop and how quick you can get that when you're working at a high growth startup and got addicted to that at my first job where I was at Tilt a payments company and we had very quickly gone from a couple thousand users to well over a million over the course of two years, which is a crazy ramp. That kind of continued that thread of, okay, how can I re repeat that? How can I do that faster? How can I build my tech stack so that when it comes time for me to build my own thing, I know without a doubt, this is what it looks like. And I think throughout that whole course, I started to figure out and Webflow became a very big component of that. And Webflow also then became a very easy hall pass company for me of like, I always knew if there was ever an opportunity for me to go in and help or work on the product that made such a big difference for my career, I would take it. When this role came along where it's not only like help that, but also help the people that I had once kind of been, it was an absolute no brainer. It's a dream opportunity in so many ways. That's a really, really good summary of your journey. So what I found um, fascinating about that is how you use Webflow to basically facilitate community. And now you have kind of gone full circle and now you're at Webflow facilitating community and the community is helping to shape the product itself. Can you talk a little bit about how, you know, Webflow is helping uh, communities grow, but also how the community is helping Webflow grow? It's so symbiotic. There's a lot of companies or no shortage of companies who are like, I want a community. But often in a lot of cases, there are really fantastic ones out there. 
but a lot of them are mistaken for, oh, community is another marketing channel, a billboard of sorts, or it's really more about the company. And I think Webflow has done a fantastic job since day one of building with community rather than basically just broadcasting to them. And so I think what Webflow has done really specifically with this community and like why it's so special is because it really is a platform that empowers and they've always taken that approach. The community was built on product feedback, on sharing what it is that they're building and the stories behind those creators. And so I think like in a lot of ways, like we help by obviously trying to listen to those things, to build with those things in mind, and also build programs to help showcase and surface that work. And they help us by surfacing that, by providing feedback, by being incredibly helpful and expanding what I like to think is like the whole product of Webflow, which is not just the single player, hey, I'm in the designer building by myself, but that multiplayer experience of I can find people in different factions and different parts of their own journey, their own design path. And I can work with them. I can ask questions. I'm never alone when I'm building a Webflow. Yeah, definitely. And obviously with the clonables being such a big part of the platform, there's a very real facet of community at play that happens daily. Um, And I think that's why so many people are getting involved with not just the platform, but also all the community events. But what's really, really fascinating, I think, as well about Webflow in comparison to other platforms is that the community events that are not only organized by Webflow, but also you've got State of Flow with Melissa Mendez and other things like that. Can you tell us a little bit about how to build a community that's as strong as Webflow's? To be honest, like the hardest part about communities is like getting started and building your habits around it. The hardest part about that is I think a lot of folks have the good motivation, good reason to want to go and start one, but they underestimate the amount of work that it takes to get the right people in the room to build that rapport. And I often actually think back of like the earliest days of community and like how that impacts kind of where they are years later. So taking a look at let's say when when you host a party, it's probably easy for you to pull the first 10 people that come top of mind because you know they're going to show up in a pretty predictable manner. You like know their behavior. You know that they're going to interact well with each other. As it starts to get beyond that, people that you fill in the room at the beginning are going to dictate the ambiance, like the mood, like what people talk about, how comfortable people are. And you being very mindful as the host of that, similar to like the community builder at large, your point is to make sure that you're building spaces that have the right type of people that you know are going to be friendly and be open, have that ambiance and those behaviors that like you're trying to build on. I always relate it back to parties because we've all been there where we've gone to parties Mm -hmm. where we know people or like they're talking about things that we're interested in. And we've also been sucked into events where we're like, oh my goodness, I have nothing in common with anyone here. I'm like totally alone. I'm going to awkwardly drink this random thing and like leave. (laughs) And community virtually and in person is like that. So I think in terms of events and the community led portion of that, that is really like an abstraction of the first group. Then as they start to build off, you're like, hey, localized groups would be really, really cool. Like who hears from Europe or like who hears from like Lisbon specifically as an example. And that starts to naturally aggregate into those smaller rooms, similar to again, to house party of everyone first congregates maybe in the kitchen and then they like find their own respective couch crew or, you know, the people that are awkwardly by the closet for some reason or 
<laughs> the folks that are like playing a beer game as an example. And I think that that's where like the community led portions become really exciting. Taking an abstraction of that first room and building a net new habit and being responsible for like that net new add-on of, hey, you like Webflow, but you also, let's say, like integrations, come be here. And slowly but surely, the journey for someone in a community is now come in, feel welcome in room one, find room two, find person within room two that they get very, very excited by. And it's very scientific at that point. And to me, like that, that is like a really good, healthy sign of community growth. So let's get into your failures. Tell me about failure one, pushing an automation too early. So I, I feel like we've all been here when you're like in one of those phases where it's like super late at night, you're on like your fifth coffee and you're just trying to, to solve a problem. This was like early days for me where I was experimenting with basically early stage startup, first person on the ground, basically couldn't hire more. So needed to like automate more, be smarter with my time. And so I was like, of course, automations, integrations, let's do it. And had like very lightly played with Zapier and Integromat before and was basically just trying to automate some very common questions that we had come in with like a good response. Got everything set up, finally was going through it, was getting to the point where I was just filling out my own form like a million times so that I could just quadruple check that it was working. However, (laughs) I had multiple tabs open because I was playing with multiple iterations of what would have been my Zap from someone submitting a question to it hitting our inbox and our sandbox to it potentially getting filtered into the right inbox and then sending out a reply. I clicked live on the wrong one. My gibberish reply was beep boop because it was late at night and I was just trying to figure out how our bots would reply to things. And that resulted in a one second click that got about 15,000 people hit with an individual message that just said beep boop from our company profile, um, which wasn't fantastic. And I had hoped that of those 15K, no one from the office would be part of it because I was very early in my career. About 50 of them were. (laughs) Uh, And that very quickly became my nickname in the office for quite some time. But thankfully, uh, the team was very understanding. That gives me nightmares because I've had a very similar thing. I set up this community (laughs) called the Creative Book Club. But I still had a welcome email go out when people signed up for it, which was like, I'm going to organize a call for you. And that email had been going out unbeknownst to me for months and months. And all these people were expecting a call from me. I actually got an angry message on LinkedIn, which finally let me know that this was still happening. So yeah, that gives me cold sweats, that story. Beep boop isn't the worst bit of gibberish that you could have. No, I did have worse ones. Okay, so at least you chose that one. But I mean, if you had any learnings from that, I know that you could just be like, well, I wouldn't have chosen that one, obviously. But (laughs) you have a kind of system. Are you like, okay, now I'm going to get my boyfriend to check it or whatever do you have anything that's like a kind of sure fail safe thing to do oh my god yeah um i'm a lover of the sandbox now (laughs) there is not a single automation that i have pushed since that does not 
have a sandbox. And so what I mean by that is it's like an interim place that all of your inputs and your outputs go to. I use Airtable predominantly for my my intermediary. And I would definitely say if you are someone who pushes a ton of automations, having a step before you actually push it to your database, before you actually push it live live, and that being like an enclosed database of sorts will save you so many headaches. And I think additionally, if you are, let's say, uncomfortable with playing around with, let's say, your core database or uncomfortable playing around with like your core data visualizer, having a sandbox is a fantastic place for you to manipulate data and play with it and get an understanding without potentially ruining your end result. Can you tell me a little bit about um, failure two? making a bot that accidentally sent free money to customers? So, I mean, it was purposefully supposed to send free money to customers. I didn't think that it was going to be as popular as it was, which in hindsight totally makes sense because, like, who doesn't want free money? I don't even know if this campaign would work nowadays because it sounds so fishy. Um, But it was an earlier stage in the internet and people were down to do whatever, I guess, with their phones. So at at the time I was working at a company called Tilt, which was an easy way to people for people to send requests, split payments between friends. And we were launching, or I guess historically we were a little bit more like Venmo for groups uh, if you're in the States or Kickstarter, but for let's say like smaller things. And what we were trying to do was launch P2P payments, which people were already doing with our group function, but just inviting one person. So we're like, we might as well make this a thing. In order to get people to actually go in, test that out, we thought that it'd be really great to have a bot, like to teach people to like go into the app, look up that bot's name, request a dollar. Some campaigns, people were hit up to $10 they would immediately pay it out. So they'd go through like the whole product cycle of download, look up, request money, receive money, celebrate. And so we, we built a bunch of different bots. One in Canada, for example, was Drake back when Hotline Bling came out. Mm-hmm. And so we took the gif of him doing like the weird dance where it kind of looked like he could be throwing out money. So we like animated that. We had Drake bot as an example. We had like broke Kanye bot, dad joke bot, so many of them. What I didn't think about was we set them up with a small script using my actual iPhone. And so I had logged into this bot, had created it, was on my cell phone. We launched the campaign, didn't think much of it. The notifications came in so quickly that I couldn't get to my settings in time to be able to turn off notifications from it to the point where I literally couldn't use my phone for days and it had to be plugged in at all times because the notifications are coming in so quickly. And I'm pretty sure it shot my battery, (laughs) but it was a fantastic campaign. And again, I've learned, don't use your own personal personal, uh, devices uh, when you're doing work tests. (laughs) And also people like free money. So don't underestimate that. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So there was two bits of key advice there. Market using free money. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah don't use your personal okay so there seems to be a kind of trend here emily i mean you know there's a lot of personal devices with the company <laughs> stuff were you always as senior as you are now with webflow with with other um industries that you've been working in 
Oh my gosh, no. I mean, those those two stories in particular, like very early days in my career where I was just like hungry and excited to like do things. And like, I think that's why like the quote unquote story of like intern does X and it results in Y is like such a relatable and entertaining um, narrative that I think a lot of us rally behind. Those stories ranged from me being fresh out of university into maybe like two years into my career of just messing around and not having resources, or I guess even three years into my career there. And I think as I've gotten more senior, as I've done that, I've just been like a lot more bestowing that information onto people on my team so that they don't (laughs) do those things again. That being said, though, doesn't matter what stage you are in your career, you are going to mess up and it's going to happen. You just learn to be a little bit more gracious about it or a little bit more welcoming of it. And I think being in growth for so long in my career, like failure is literally such a large component Mm -hmm. of experimentation and running experimental teams that like you kind of need to relish in it. And I've never been scared of the funny mishaps that come from it because they often do have learnings, period. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting how I find the most successful people are often the ones that have failed the most, or at least been willing to fail the most to potentially look stupid. And that's what this podcast is all about. So I'm not trying to take the mickey out of you. It's just fascinating that for a company campaign to use your personal phone to like, you know, get all these notifications. It's just such a wild result of free money, really successful campaign. Oh shit. Like my phone is going to die. Oh, it was 100% my fault. (laughs) (laughs) I just shouldn't have done that, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) One of your uh, final failures was about the Lego marketing ploy that went hideously wrong. Yeah. What this is the wildest one of all in my head. So basically, this was during my time uh, when I was at Clio on the growth team. Uh, Clio's legal practice management software. We wanted to try out ABM, which is like account-based marketing. Um, or for those who are unfamiliar with that, it basically means when you like choose a specific account or target company that you're trying to get on board, and you send them a very personalized campaign. In a lot of cases, ABM's also associated with like giving gifts as like a way to like get them to reply to you. So I was like, okay, cool. Let's experiment with it. I was definitely like a mad scientist back at Clio where like any like net new idea that was like a little bit too weird away from what we were already doing would somehow end up on my plate because I was like, heck yeah, let's do it. Um, At the time, uh, we hadn't really done much in that realm of marketing. And we had to also find a campaign that wasn't going to be like very offensive to lawyers, but also like could be kind of playful enough that could warrant a response. And so we settled on Lego because that way we could send a cheeky message of like, let's build a better practice together and like send something that's very non-offensive. And most lawyers have kids because it takes a while for them to get actually accredited and to the point in their career where they would be on our contact list. So that was kind of our assumption. Next step was actually like sending those Legos out. So ABM software costs a ton of money. I just wanted to do a test. So I was like, I'll use Amazon because they have free shipping a lot of times. So got the company credit card, got a bunch of people log in on different computers. In hindsight, I could have predicted where this was going. All using the same credit card to buy the same Lego set and send them out to places all around the world. 
to me, I was like, oh my God, genius, saving money, saving time, shipping, not having to procure an ABM software. To Amazon, that looked a lot like a scam. <laughs> and so what ended up actually happening was we got maybe 10 out out of like the 250 we wanted to do that day before our company card got flagged for fraud. We got kicked out of our Amazon account. That company card that got flagged for fraud was connected to all these other softwares, happened to be the end of the month. So like all these failed payments started to come through. I was freaking out. We're in a startup office. So all of our conference rooms are glass. So I'm like totally freaking out and everyone can see me. And I basically ended up staying at the office until like 12 a.m. that night just to like try to get through all of the ways that we could make sure that this doesn't happen again. How do we like still maintain some of this campaign? So on and so forth. Finally, credit cards unfrozen. Things are okay. People at work are like, it's fine. I'm like, it's not okay. Uh, We had Lego to send. I like leave, lock up the office, start walking home. And for whatever reason, that specific day, there was a massive installation two blocks away from our office on my way home of giant human-sized Lego. And I don't know if it was like the world mocking me, but in that exact moment, I don't think I've ever like maniacally laughed in public before, but like I did in front of this Lego installation at 12.30 at night in the middle of streets of Toronto. And it was fantastic. And to this day, I will literally never buy Lego again. (laughs) God, that is crazy. So, I mean, you looked at this Lego piece after having possibly the most horrific day. And you just, you were just done with life. Oh my God. So you've never bought Lego since and you'll never buy it again? I mean... Um, maybe one day if I have kids and they're like, please, after like seven times of asking, maybe. But I've definitely never <laughs> procured Lego since and definitely still do get like a little bit of PTSD when I see that specific set that we tried to buy everybody. So, I mean, all of these failures come from some pretty interesting like marketing campaigns, which obviously you've done because they're way more effective than like traditional marketing campaigns. I imagine like that, you know, they're going to get media attention. They're going to be probably more well received by the people that receive them. Do you feel like web flowers, freelancers, agencies, people in the Webflow space, do you think they should be trying more outrageous stuff? Because although these are all kind of, I don't want to use the term failures, I'd say more creative (laughs) marketing lessons they're also insanely impressive and I imagine have way, way better um, response rate than anything else. Yeah. I mean, like, I think that there are big swings and big wins. That's just kind of how you look at it. I think a good strategy is always having like a good variety of things, things that you know are like surefire wins, things that are foundational, important. And then basically it's, it's almost the same when you're like building body mass or you're building like muscle mass. There's like skeletal things that are, you need to do these things in order to be alive. (laughs) The next is your foundationals, necessary campaigns, like regular channels that like everyone needs to do. Email, SEO, like your potential for just base ads, like things like that are things that table stakes. 
And then there are ways that you can either optimize, you can take these larger swings that could result in like a shortcut to like a next level for your company or whatever you're building, or could be, you know, a good lesson. And I think that healthy balance of knowing when you can afford to take some of those larger bets or when like sometimes those things are going to pay off, I think is always healthy and exciting and keeps people engaged longer, whether it's you trying to remain motivated in your job or trying to keep your audience really excited about what it is, what what are they going to do next? And I like, I think that those stories are, I, I often like don't shy away from telling them, like I do a lot of mentoring. I talk to a lot of early stage solo marketers or solo designers or students who just don't know how to pursue the career that they're looking for. I personally think taking those bets, having those stories, like having those scars makes you more interesting when you are starting to like tell your story of what you uniquely bring. And I love that. I love hearing those stories back and forth too. And they're funny and they're awkward and they're sometimes frustrating in the moment, but looking back on them, like they're defining. You don't talk about that one time that you sent your hundredth email campaign that went exactly as planned, but you do talk about those times where you accidentally sent beep boop to a random people. Yeah. And it's definitely very humbling for someone at the start of their journey to hear those mistakes, the things that didn't go right, because there's enough people shouting about the things that are going amazingly in their life. You know, the second you log into social media, I want to ask you though, if anyone's watching that's an agency owner or a freelancer, you talk there about getting the basics of marketing in order and then risking it to take the biscuit or whatever the like American phrase is. When is the time, in your opinion, for a freelancer or an agency owner to be like, let's risk it and do something a bit more outlandish with our marketing, do you think? I mean, when you have a little bit of foundation, like you have a good idea of who your audience is, like what your goal is as a company, like foundationally, I think in those levels, you need to have that sound before you start to make crazy bets <laughs> by any means. And also I think there there's sometimes a confusion of like big bets equals like big spend. Totally not the case. 99% of the reasons why like those things have failed is because I was trying to be scrappy. Um, not because we had tons of money or tons of time to blow. Cause like that's very rarely the case. There's no perfect time per se to be like, here's where you can take a big swing. But sometimes I think the best thing that you can do for yourself is like provide time for you or your team potentially to take a step back from what you're doing on a day-to-day basis and ask like, what else could we be doing? Because often like that's where some of these really exciting creative campaigns can come. And sometimes like it doesn't have to be a full blown um, huge campaign that you're doing but could be like a small test or an iteration of, hey, like, does the small pivot make sense for us? It's validation. It's it's a way for us to get early data. And like, as much as I talk about these failures, there's like loads of examples that have come from like that same incubation process that have led to really good things for us. Like very similarly, like the compliment to like the free money campaign, for example, was like we were having issues with messaging. People like had historically, this is actually the opposite effect of like having a big swing here was uh, in the States, Tilt was huge for very large parties, very like 5,000 person Cinco de Mayo parties or like massive events when like the true value of our product was we were making it easier for like the organizational person in your friend group to like just get paid back <laughs> and like not feel awkward about it. That That's totally different. And we were competing against like these much sexier, much more exciting marketing campaigns to basically say like, hey, don't feel bad about asking your roommate to pay you back for utilities. 
it's like not a cool story in comparison to the other one. Another example of something that came from that was um, literally making a rogue website to talk about Tilt as a product, which we actually did a ton of. I think I had like 15 microsites that we played around with that drove back to Tilt, which was kind of cool. Um, and some were super viral, some were total duds, some were like strictly for SEO, like lots of ways to think about it. But one in particular was called uh, DaveIsTheWorst.com. Literally doesn't even have Tilt in the name of it. And we took a photo of one of my then coworkers, Lee. We dubbed him Dave because he just looked like a friend that everyone would have. And we called him the worst and he was totally down for this. <laughs> um, and the whole site was literally just talking about meet Dave. Dave is the worst. Dave never pays you back for pizza, but like is always eating takeout. Dave never pays you back for like, or never pays you for internet, but like still mooches off your Netflix. Um, and these are all like super relatable, actual stories of like problems that users had, but we just centered it around this fictional character, Dave, and made a whole website about like all of the ways that he was the worst and all of the ways with fun CTAs that you could potentially use Tilt to like get Dave to pay you back. And Dave became a bot for us too. And what we didn't expect was not only did that help to like really resonate messaging, but it also went super viral because people started to tag all of their Daves in their friend group, as well as people who were like metaphorically Daves. And it totally changed the way that we could do messaging without having to do traditional ads. It cost us literally just the amount for the website. And it was organically powerful. Like that is a good example of one that like we did pretty early on that had huge impacts on us and really only took a few hours for us to get set up. I think a lot of agencies can do things like that by showcasing alternative work, other microsites, or even taking small bets like hosting Webflow party or maybe trying live streams or things like that and paving the way for other people to also use those as ways that they can connect. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've seen the success of microsites with 368 with uh, Timothy Ricks. He made a website for um, health workers and this website obviously went viral because everyone's like, this is amazing. And that linked back to their website. I had a similar thing where I made a website called the history of veganism, which was received a lot of hate, but it actually went back to my website at the bottom. If you scroll far enough, then you could send me uh, hate messages at the bottom. And that turned out to be amazing for me, uh, for traffic, not so much for clients, but the point is still the same mm -hmm. that doing something that, is a big swing time-wise, there might be a big time investment. It actually doesn't cost that much. And you know that can completely change the game for freelancers or agency owners. There's, um, there's a few community questions. There was a really interesting question actually in the chat here uh, from Jeremy LaRue. Jeremy, amazing name, I love that name. So how is Webflow planning on working with the existing communities in the space that sprouted up after Webflow chapters kind of fell off the radar, he says. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think for a lot of folks, myself included, I've been a meetup organizer in the past. I think that like you really do need a lot of support if in particular you are doing it yourself, you either need more people to help you or you need support from, let's say, a company that you're helping to promote or things like that. And I think in a lot of cases, 
with the meetup program, a lot of folks just were getting people together to talk about Webflow, talk about how they were using it, help each other out. And I know during COVID that became really, really hard for a lot of people who were historically leaning on that as an in-person way of, of kind of bridging that connection. I think as I'm now kind of getting back into the swings of things and really auditing what are ways that we can help to really revamp some of these programs, we are actively working on and looking to launch within like the next few weeks, a revamped global leads program that includes the organizers and includes a lot of these sub-communities or revamping events.webflow.com. Um, so then that way it really, really focuses on increasing the surfacing of the content that people are creating as well as the events that they're doing. And we're also, which I'm really excited to announce, even taking that to the next level around WebflowConf, where we are going to be launching a like road to conference style community led uh, program where people who are, let's say, interested or are already hosting events leading up to the conference and maybe even watch parties during will actually be promoted in like almost a band tour style. Maybe this is me alluding back to my old uh, history of being a musician, but um, band tour style uh, CMS on webflowconf.com so that people can actually find global hubs that are going to make that experience a lot more exciting because I know not everybody can fly out to San Francisco to be at a conference. Plus the fact that we're reinvesting money into that and we're also launching community grants, which will provide increased ways that we can provide financial support as well as access to our team are all things that are very top of mind with that program. I'm also very open to hearing more feedback on anything that you specifically want to see from it because that's really our goal right now. Awesome. Wow, that sounds like a hell of a lot in uh, in the works with community for Webflow. And that links back to earlier in the conversation where, you know, the heart of Webflow is the is the community and and there's that kind of symbiotic relationship. So it's really amazing that you're willing to hear um, you know, feedback because I guess your inbox is inundated every day with people. So what excites you most about the the next few years as you lead the Webflow community through a stage of viral growth? Oh my gosh, there's like, there's so many things. Um, I think like the biggest thing for me that's really, really exciting is unlocking more like internationalization and more ways that people can find their like their second room, their third room, like I mentioned in the analogy before is I think that we have such a fantastic opportunity of so many people, with so many specialized talents and places and things that they can connect on is that one is how can we provide better programs, better opportunities for folks to like find their local tribe, bring some of the offline side back into kind of how we build on the platform. So I think that's really exciting. And even co-creation, I think is a really big element of that too, is how do we work with the community to create content that we're missing or that could be localized? Um, and I know like a hot topic in a lot of cases is people around multi-language and building in different parts of the world. So how can we partner and really like focus on globalization as something that we can really expand into as a community? And I think lastly is like rethinking how we as a community surface regularly the content that's created because there is so much from the community itself. So very excited to rethink how we can even use like forward slash community on Webflow to be like a crowdsource complement to Webflow University to a certain degree. Incredible. So there's a ton of stuff that, you know, people are asking about uh, and setting up their own local events and local communities. 
what is the best way that they can get in contact for Webflow to potentially support that or, um, you know, grow or get advice for, for whatever they're doing? I would say right now, reaching out to events at webflow.com, that will go back to me and the community team. If you're interested, I do have a form for folks that is going to be embedded on that, on that page, but I can send it to you preemptively. Ultimately, like that's going to help us get a sense of those who already have a community or looking for support or want to start their own. In addition, if you are interested in potentially hosting one of like the Webflow Conf related events, definitely reach out to events as well. We are going to be also launching a form specifically for that. There's going to be fun giveaways for the leaders that are going to be participating in that program, as well as a few sneak peeks that will be able to slip your way. So very exciting uh, on that front as well. That's amazing. Interesting question here from Ben. How do you slash can you disconnect from social media as a community manager? I would say, I mean, candidly, I'm like very bad at that. <laughs> I I would say it's like the number one thing that like my partner will regularly like get at me for. He'll like literally take my phone away from me sometimes. <laughs> I do think that there are ways in which that you can be more proactive about it. For example, like my Twitter I will obviously talk about things Webflow related, but I also talk about other randomness and like, don't let my personality get drowned out by that. And I do try to do that. And it's not everybody's cup of tea, but like, to me, like, it's still my face. It's still like part of my own social media presence. I think the other side of that too, is also like a lesson learned. If you have like a Facebook community, or if you have, let's say Slacks or things like that is like potentially even making like an alt account that like is not associated with your personal account could also be helpful. I've definitely like gone through that where like it's your personal account and like there's the blessing and there's the curse of being like at the forefront of a community of people can reach out and they can have really proactive things and be really excited. Or there can be people who have like really serious or like can follow up with you like very, very regularly and like pass that boundary. So I think that's also just something like to, to warn and to really like think about as well. But I do think it's possible. I do think, however, community managers as a whole do like that connection. So it is also hard to turn that piece off. Um, so whatever works for you works for you. And what is your next failure going to be, Emily? Oh, my goodness. Um, I mean, if I pre-plan my failures, are they just successes? That is the <laughs> best comeback yeah. I've heard from that question so far. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I will definitely let you know when when I know. I'm very, very intrigued because it sounds like you're pushing the boundaries so much that no doubt, I, I don't want to use the word failure. Mistakes <laughs> may happen. Learning. Learning. Learnings will happen. Of course. Thanks for listening to episode six of Webflow with Emily Lanetto. What I loved about this episode is that despite being the director of community at Webflow and having had senior marketing positions at Tilt and other well-known companies, Emily is not only willing to share her failures, but wear them as a badge of honor. She is proud to tell us some of the ways she has completely embarrassed herself, but instead of seeing her faceplant moments as things to hide away from, she notes that these are the big swing moments which have given her creative confidence and have made her prolific in her career so far. If you're listening to this at the start of your freelance journey, 
Just know that failing is natural and even required if you want to grow your freelance business beyond what you thought was possible. If you want more inspiration, business advice, and even Webflow jobs direct to your inbox, sign up for the Webflow Roundup at webflow.com. This is a weekly newsletter designed for you to take your Webflow freelancing to the next level. I hope it helps. Next week, I'll be interviewing Kayla Brook, founder of the B2B Studio. If you want to know more about starting an agency and want to even ask questions live, join us at 5 p.m. BST on YouTube next Thursday. Until next week, web flailers.